welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the podcast. And this week we will be talking with Professor Jim Van Oss and Dr. Peter Groot about their latest study, which looks at the effectiveness of tapering strips to help people get off antidepressant drugs. But before we hear from Jim and Peter, I just wanted to let you know that we now have an app for mobile devices that makes it easy to listen to new episodes of the Madden America podcast. To find it, visit the Apple App Store or Google Play and search for Madden America. Using the new app, you can easily keep up to date as we publish new interviews and you can browse our archive of interviews going back to 2017. We hope you enjoy using it. Now on to our interview, and Jim Van Os is Professor of Psychiatric Epidemiology and Public Mental Health at Utrecht University Medical Centre in the Netherlands, and Peter Groot works with the User Research Centre of UMC Utrecht. They are both involved with the development and study of tapering strips, which are pre-packaged, gradually reducing dosage tablets that facilitate tapered withdrawal from psychiatric drugs. In this interview, we discuss their latest research paper, which examines tapering strips in real-world use. Jim and Peter, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me again for uh, the Madden America podcast. We're here to talk about your recent paper entitled Successful Use of Tapering Strips for Hyperbolic Reduction of Antidepressant Dose, a Cohort Study. And this is published in the journal Therapeutic Advances in Psychopharmacology. And um, obviously, it's a paper of great interest to me, someone with a personal stake in this since I've used tapering strips myself. So I'm very interested in analysis of their effectiveness in in the real world. And so um, to kind of kick off, I, I believe this is the third study to look at the effectiveness of tapering strips and importantly, in real world use. So to begin, um, Peter, could you, could you kind of sum up the study for us? So how many participated and how is the trial undertaken and, and what were the kind of results from it? I'm happy to do so, James. Uh, but I'll start by explaining how we did the study. To begin with, our study was a retrospective cohort study. And we could do this study because in the Netherlands, starting in 2013, when the first tapering strips for paroxetine and venlafaxine became available, uh, a growing group of patients in the Netherlands have used tapering strips because the doctors prescribed them to them uh, to taper an antidepressants. And this gave us the uh, unique opportunity to ask them to fill in a short questionnaire after they had finished uh, the tapering strips they had used, they had been prescribed, and to send the questionnaire back to us. And in order to get uh, a high level of response, we kept the questionnaire deliberately as short as possible. And one important question we asked was, did you experience withdrawals? during the table. And the answer could be a number from one to seven, where one is not at all, and seven is very much. These answers gave us an indication of withdrawal 
during tapering with the use of tapering strips. The second important question we asked was, how did the tapering go? And again, the answer was a number from one to seven, where one is very well, and seven is very bad. And this answer gave us an indication of how many patients perceived the tapering process when they used tapering strips. But this was not all, because in our large sample, more than 60% of all participants had tried to taper their antidepressants uh, in the past without the use of tapering strips. And this gave us the opportunity to ask all these people these same two questions again, but this time about their previous uh, tapering. And this resulted in a large cohort of patients who could compare taper without and with the use of tapering strips. And this gives a so-called within-patient comparison, which made it possible to directly compare tapering without and with the use of tapering strips. Very important is that the results we got were results from patients who are being treated in daily clinical practice. So then, well, you, 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 we get asked the question, well, how big was the effect size? That, that's what people want to know. And basically, to give you an idea, if you look at the distribution of withdrawal uh, when people use tapering strips versus when they don't, you see the complete opposite shape of a distribution. So with the tapering strips, it is mostly in the area of went very well and, and was okay. And without tapering strips, it was in, in the area really of very poorly, you know, lots of withdrawal, etc. So a very, very, very uh, convincing effect size. And then people will say, well, you know, this is not a this is not a representative sample, which of course is true. These are the individuals who have tried previously one or two or three times and failed and then had to resort to tapering strips to try to stop and succeeded. Uh, and then, of course, you have a selection of the people most in need of tapering strips. So our reasoning is, if it works in that population who have the most need for care with regard to withdrawal, then it's very likely to be also successful in people who have less intense needs uh, with regard to withdrawal. Absolutely, that's that's helpful, Jim. Thank you. And and I was really interested to see across the three studies, the results of the studies are remarkably consistent, aren't they? Around the seventy percent mark, is that right? That's correct, James. So we were very surprised to see how consistent the effect size was. Uh, particularly when we compared study one with study three, which had completely identical methodology and questionnaires and different people uh, across different time periods. So uh, this is one way to think of science. You know, Some people say, well, you should have a randomized controlled trial, but uh, a much stronger uh, way of, of providing evidence is replication, which we all know. Replication across different samples, different timeframes, different GPs, different patients, etc. So, 
Uh, and also the third study, which, which was about the long term, showed similar results. So we were very, very pleased with that. I think it was also important to read that the, the data was anonymous, wasn't it, if I'm correct? So people didn't have to identify themselves when they responded as to uh, the, the success or not of their withdrawal experience. That's correct. Yes, we know something about because they have been prescribed tapering strips. But the setup was such that they uh, gave their data anonymously. In reading through the paper, I was interested to see that um, you collected data on the amount of time that people had been on their antidepressants. And the median usage time of your sample was five to ten years. And that seemed to me to go against some of the kind of prevailing wisdom out there that you know, long-term users might always need to take many, many months or years to come off because I think the, the, the median time taken was 56 days, wasn't it, or, or two tapering strips. And I know that the longer-term users tended to take more time to come off, but even counting that, there were, there were quite a proportion that was successful. Is, is that right? That's right. And you can say that in general, based on our data, the number of years people have used an antidepressant as predictive value for the, for the amount of withdrawal symptoms patients uh, can suffer when they taper. But it is also very important not to overinterpret these findings. This is because patients differ very much from each other. We are dealing with a very heterogeneous population. A population in which perhaps a large number of patients seems to be able to taper rather quickly without having much problems. And a smaller group will experience more problems, and a still smaller group will experience very severe problems. Now, the problem here is that we do not really know how large these percentages precisely are, because this has never until recently been investigated properly only in the last couple of years, there have been studies which have investigated this in a much better way. And the conclusion I draw from uh, all these data is that withdrawal problems have been greatly underestimated as they have been reported in the literature until recently, uh, and that older figures, therefore, are probably certainly too low. But uh, I personally don't think that it's really a big problem that we do not know precisely how severe withdrawal problems are and how many patients suffer from them. And this is because even without this knowledge, it should be possible to help patients who wish to taper responsibly. And this is because it is much more important to be able to follow the patient during tapering and to adapt the tapering schedule when a patient is starting to experience problems during the taper. Okay. As well as um, looking at the length of time that people had been uh, on the drugs, you also recorded previous failed taper attempts, which seems to be a, a, another important factor. And 
it was clear that the, a larger number of previously failed attempts uh, was was kind of linked with a lower success rate in in getting off if if i i read that correctly so you know that that kind of strengthens the argument doesn't it to provide the best possible tapering method as early as possible in people's withdrawal experience so that we minimize those failed attempts because it makes the hurdle greater to get over later doesn't it so as well as that, were, were there any other factors that were kind of linked with a, a reduced success rate for people trying to get off antidepressants? So the length of use and previous withdrawal really stand out as the two factors contributing most. Uh, and there is a suggestion, which I think is interesting in two of the studies, that paroxetine may be harder to come off paroxetine versus any other antidepressants. And this is something we saw more conclusively in the last study, uh, but there was also a suggestion in the first study. So this is something that we definitely want to uh, keep track of. What really stands out most strongly is the the longer the previous use of antidepressants, the, the lower the success rate. Uh, that's the most important factor. Also, I noticed that there was um, quite a high proportion of females in the in the study in, in comparison to males is that because more females are prescribed to in the netherlands so the sample would would you know be bigger because of that or is it because females generally find it more di- more difficult than males to come off have you any insight into why that might be well actually what what we did is uh, with the third study we compared the demographics of our sample to the demographics of a very large random population sample that has been collected in the Netherlands recently and also had items on antidepressant use. And we found that the demographics of of our sample in terms of age and sex was similar to the demographics of the antidepressant users in the general population sample. However, the variables that were skewed in our sample were type of antidepressants, and this will not surprise you, the rates of venlafaxine and paroxetine were higher in our sample compared to the general population sample, which is why we have been telling general practitioners, please do not prescribe venlafaxine or paroxetine anymore. There's no need. And have you had any any response to that request? Actually, people were very surprised. So the general practitioners I speak still uh, have a different image uh, when they think of venlafaxine and paroxetine as very effective antidepressants, uh, which, of course, they, they, they were marketed uh, very proficiently and professionally uh, in the Netherlands. And I think they, they were very successful in the sense that they created an aura of them being very successful. And, and this has persisted until this time. Thank you. Um, that's, that's really helpful. Thank you, Jim. Um, and so, you know, again, we, we know that as it currently stands, people who insist that they want to taper slowly will probably be prescribed a liquid form. Are there any studies, Peter, that you're aware of that have looked at the effectiveness of liquid forms for tapering use? Regarding the use of liquid medication, I think it is important to make a few remarks first. And my first remark is that it, it is possible to taper drugs using liquid medication because we see that there are patients who succeed when they do this. But there are also patients who try to 
taper using liquid medication who don't succeed and who are having problems when they try to do this. But we don't know how many people succeed and how many people fail. We just have uh, opinions of uh, doctors about it. And we hear stories from patients. I hear stories from patients. And the stories I hear is that there are quite a number of patients who start having troubles using liquid medication, especially when they uh, are nearing the end of the table. My second remark is that as far as I know, we have no reliable data about this because this has simply never been investigated properly. The third remark is that liquid medications have not been developed for tapering. And they have never been tested for this purpose. I asked this uh, to Glaxo uh, about uh, paroxetine. And they told me, well, actually, we don't know. It was registered 20 years ago. And anyway, uh, below this dose, we cannot guarantee that liquid medication will work properly. So basically, they did not know. I do fully understand why patients ask for liquid medication. And that is because the medication they want to have is simply not available. So it's a matter of something is better than not having something at all. It is the only viable alternative they can op- come up with currently. And that it is so is because pharmaceutical companies have not given them anything better over all these years. My next remark is that although doctors and patients may think that liquid medication will help most patients, nobody knows for how many patients this is true and for how many patients this is problematic. It may be problematic because it may be difficult to follow instructions adequately, which may be especially difficult for more vulnerable patients for patients who have used a number of different medications at the same time. And taken together, this gives me very mixed feelings about the use of liquid medications. And I wonder what patients would prefer if they would be given the choice between liquid medication or the use of tapering strips, which are much more easy to work with, much easier to understand. And also because uh, the tapering stick, the dosing, is much more accurate. Thank you. Kind of turning to this whole issue then of, of comparing withdrawal methods. And, you know, the, the question that people ask, which is the best way for people to withdraw? I've seen discussions on social media to suggest that until a randomized control trial is done that compares all the different ways that people can withdraw, then, you know, we, we, we won't be able to tell if there's a, a standout method or not. I just wondered what your feelings were about, is a randomized control trial the best instrument to use to assess the wide variety of experiences that people have when they try and stop antidepressants? I think I think it's very interesting because this is really a, a patient issue. And then how does the scientific community react to that? How do they think they're going to help patients answer these questions? So uh, there's different ways you can think of a trial, of course. But the trial they have proposed in the Netherlands, uh, that's, that may take five to ten years uh, and likely will be inconclusive, is that they want to compare what they call regular tapering with venlafaxine and paroxetine which basically means cold turkey, 
because there's no small doses to taper. So this is, they call regular tapering, just stopping your medication at, at the lowest dose of venlafaxine and paroxetine, and then see what happens. And then compare that with personalized tapering. Uh, the problem is that they uh, will likely run into trouble with that design because, uh, you know, this week there was an article in JAMA, and this was about opiates. And they were actually literally describing the fact that it is impossible, probably, to do a randomized tapering trial. Why? Because of ethical issues. Uh, because the outcome of the trial is not that you bring uh, something good, uh, like trying to cure your cancer, but to avoid something bad. So then if the control condition is you let the bad thing happen, and then you see if less of that bad thing happens, if you do something, that is completely unethical. And the interesting thing is that the Americans, of course, are much much keener on these ethics issues because ethics is 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 a much uh, more uh, litigated issue there. Whereas in the Netherlands, uh, and I've also seen people writing about this from the UK, let's see who gets the most, most withdrawal if you do this or that. This is simply not possible ethically. So the only reasonable randomized control trial that you could possibly undertake is to compare personalized tapering with a tapering strip and compare that in the, in randomized control trial with a personalized form of liquid tapering. Uh, so the two arms are both personalized, but one with liquid form and one with tapering strips. That, that would be a reasonable trial. Um, the only thing is that the ethics committee might say, well, please, can you show that if, if it comes to very small doses, that these liquid forms can be dosed precisely? And the answer is we can't. Uh, because that's why the consensus document on tapering in the Netherlands uh, uh, actually does not allow for liquid tapering. They disrecommend it because they say it is too messy and you can't guarantee that the small doses in these droplets are actually the ones you're actually supposed to take. Um, so ethically, I think that would be difficult as well. And then the third is simply scientifically, it has been long known for a long, 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 long time that proper observational studies and trials yield the same results as randomized controlled trials. And the advantage of observational studies is that, of course, the populations are much more representative than randomized controlled trials. Um, and there's many more problems I could go on, but so I, I don't think a trial is going to be, to, to be conducted the one they like to propose here in the Netherlands. It's, it's simply not possible ethically. We think that Tapering should be personalized and that we should try to avoid one size fits all recommendation and guidelines. Yeah, this is what is currently sort of happening. Because what works well for one patient does not have to work well for another patient. And as I've said already, there is no proper way currently for a prescriber to predict this reliably. And therefore, it's very important to monitor, self-monitor tapering and to act on the basis of this during the tapering to make the tapering go as best as possible. What I just told is not different from what patients all over the world have been advocating for many, many years now. 
And I can specifically name Ed White, John Reed, and Sherry Julio, who described Facebook groups who are helping patients to come off psychiatric medications. And Adele Framer, the founder of the website Surviving Antidepressants, also wrote a very good article about this. Both these articles were published last year. And in my opinion, they should be obligatory reading for physicians who must help patients to taper safely and responsibly. And what I described, I think, is also basically what somebody like Professor Heather Aston has been advocating for coming off uh, benzodiazepines for many, many years. And her message, in my view, was do not simply follow a standard recite in a guideline, but instead work together with the patient to guide the process of tapering. Take the time for it and listen to the patient and don't try to go too fast. It is interesting to point out that RCTs are essentially a form of group research. So if you do group research, the results you get will be valid for the groups you studied. And this is something different than being valid for an individual patient within a group. What you're both saying kind of says to me that randomized control trials are, are probably right where you're asking a very specific question of a very specific population of patients. And yet that's, that isn't the world of withdrawal, is it? We're talking about a wide variety of experiences, wide variation in people's subjective and objective ways that they might assess how they are and are not getting on. You can't placebo control it because it's unethical to let people think they're being withdrawn when you're actually giving them a placebo, which is, is having no effect at all. So, you know, I, I think the studies that you are doing are probably the best method of assessing the effectiveness of tapering interventions. Correct. So then, you know, looking towards the future a, a little bit. So obviously, I'm aware that there continue to be barriers to the adoption of tapering strips, uh, partly coming from perhaps the insistence that antidepressants are not defendants forming drugs but also partly from local healthcare arrangements and you know in the netherlands your insurance based and reimbursement based healthcare system so um you know i just wondered if you could both share a little bit about what your experiences have been in trying to encourage the adoption of tapering strips in the netherlands yes so i think this is a very interesting topic because it's basically like a phd on on medical sociology uh, in the sense that what happens in the Netherlands is that Peter in 2013 proposed to 20 professors of psychiatry, the best known professors of psychiatry in the Netherlands, saying, look, there is this problem, there's withdrawal, let's write an article together and tell people there's tapering strips and they can order them. And and everybody was very enthusiastic. They were thinking, okay, this is great, this is a need. So we published the article together with Peter. And then what we saw is actually that people started using them. So there was, there was a demand for them. And then with the demands, there came a signal and the debate about, oops, how, how large is this group? Who, who, and, then, and then so the, there were fora and there were groups. And actually, it seemed that the prevalence was much higher than people had expected. And with that signal came also a professional debate 
in the sense that uh, general practitioners who are responsible for 80% of antidepressant prescriptions were asking themselves, did we do something wrong? And then psychiatrists were also weighing in saying, well, uh, you know, is, is this really so severe? And that professional debate had a certain kind of unease that, that, that was emerging in the sense that uh, admitting that withdrawal was actually prevalent, sometimes severe, and requires a different uh, prescribing practice, uh, you know, was admitting like uh, we haven't been very careful with this uh, molecule at all. And at the same time, what we saw is that there was a big debate about the effectiveness of antidepressants. So lots of people refer then to the Lancet Network meta-analysis uh, saying, look, it's effective. But if you look really carefully at that network meta-analysis, the real thing it's saying is, well, there's a couple, it, it, there's a non-clinical difference between placebo and antidepressants, which is probably, the reality is that probably some people have a really good response, but it's, it's like you can't predict whom, and a very large group will not have a response at all, but will have difficulties coming off antidepressants. So what this, the whole debate about withdrawal was also becoming a whole debate about psychiatry and prescription of antidepressants. And then, of course, uh, we are Dutch. You know, we don't like spending money. We're very mean. So the, when, when the group came, became larger and the demands became larger, the, the health insurers stopped reimbursing them because initially they thought, oh, this is very nice. This is for one or two people. And then we can all move on. But all of a sudden, it became aware this was really a societal issue. Uh, so the financial components weighed in as well. So it was professional, financial, and it was also about, I think, the underlying civil rights movement of patients, which in the Netherlands, we've always, always been very slow to acknowledge. No, I fully agree. I mean, when the tapering strategy became available, I thought that they would be warmly welcomed especially because all these professors supported this. Uh, and because it made possible that guidelines had always been asking also to let patients taper gradually when needed. But much to my surprise, our four greatest health insurers, who have about 90% of the market in the Netherlands, did not want to reimburse the tapering strips. This has led to a situation where responsible parties involved are all pointing to each other instead of taking responsibility. And this is lasting now in the Netherlands for more than five years. And there are court cases going on about this. And we have no idea when it ends. And at the same time, we see that more and more doctors are prescribing tapering. So it's, it's a very frustrating situation as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I have to say that as a someone with lived experience of this, you know, it was hugely disappointing in the UK to see that the biggest response to uh, the need for tapering was the response that unless we know the size of the population affected to 10 decimal places, then we can't possibly do anything about it. That made me incensed, you know, that there is a need, there is a solution, you know, there is a, a way to help people who have been harmed, yet we can't possibly help harmed people unless we know exactly the percentage that are affected. Well, this looks very much like the argument that's used here. Basically, they are saying if there are uh, only a few people who suffer from it, 
then uh, we don't need reimbursement. And compare this to a situation where one out of 10,000 persons get a specific form of cancer, then we will not say this. Then we will say, oh, there's a medication of 100,000 euros, and it should be paid for, because this is an unmet need of this patient. But when it comes to papering, no, it's only a problem if, say, a sizable proportion of 20% of the patients is suffering from it. It is, is as if we are saying, if the group of patients that has this problem is too small, they will not be helped, well, which is something I still can't uh, understand. We're in a position where you've, you've now done three studies amongst some 2,000-odd people. You've, you've had a confirmed success rate of around 70% each time. You've collected very important, valuable data on people's quality of experience and the length of time they were on the drugs. So, you know, it seems to me that, you know, you've replicated your success rate on several occasions now. So what, what more do you think needs to be done, if anything, for this approach to be taken seriously by prescribers? I think that what has helped greatly is that, for example, uh, the media showing uh, real images of real people struggling and showing that there's real suffering there. And I think it has it has helped enormously uh, in our case uh, for the wider popular population to understand this because people don't know about it they've, they've never been told about it so if there's uh, you know general population knowledge about this i think this this will impact also prescribers because then patient coming to the gp will say well i don't want proxetine because you know it's associated with severe withdrawal or patients will ask for tapering strips and then the gp will ask well, what do you mean what is a tapering strip and then he will look it up and etc so i think with uh, more awareness and use, the problem will resolve itself. But we have to give it another five years, I think, unfortunately. Peter, your thoughts on that, the future? Well, I hope it will go a little bit faster. We still uh, have to go on each time. You have to grab yourself together and say, okay, we'll go on. And this is, of course, what we do with the studies we've done, but also with the studies that will be coming. We will go on uh, asking pa uh, patients who have tapered some time ago uh, how they are doing now. Are they still off the medication or have they started using it again? And the result of our second study in which we asked this question is that about 70% of people who have stopped uh, or have tapered an antidepressant completely one to five years ago, you could not measure longer, indicated 70% of them is still not using the medication again. And there seems to be no difference between patients who have used uh, the medication five years or one year or 20 years. And this is for me a very promising finding because it suggests that also people who have been using antidepressants for a very long period of time, if they get the opportunity to taper carefully and take a long time for it, it still seems to be possible for them to come off uh, the drug, to stay off the drug. 
That's really important, isn't it? Because we, in support groups, we so often hear of people who have been told to come off via the standard guidelines, so 50% reduction every two weeks or whatever it is, and then they get into terrible trouble. They go back to their prescriber, and their prescriber's only response is to say, we'll go back on the antidepressant. So that poor person has not only had a terrible withdrawal experience, they're also no further forward from where they were. They're back on the drug. They've got to face that hurdle next time. So the fact that you are looking at at longer term outcome data in terms of if you have a, a better trajectory, an easy, easier trajectory off the drug, you are more likely to stay antidepressant free in the long term. That's hugely significant, isn't it? At least that's what our study suggests. And I think that's also many people have already been thinking. No, no, true. So, so I, I was just thinking that, that uh, we are also greatly helped by uh, voices like David Taylor and Mark Horowitz, who actually have uh, professional and lived experience combined, and then and then actually, uh, you know, tell us about that is really, you know, it's psychiatrists telling other psychiatrists, pharmacologists telling other pharmacologists, it's 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 real, really helps, uh, and also I think helps is is that we have. Uh, places for epistemic injustice like Mads in America, which is basically a platform for you know the civil rights movement, which is which is really helpful, I think, for 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 you, Peter, to amplify your voice and be heard, uh, and that and that is really great, I think. Well, both of you, you know, I, I can't thank you enough for your work. As I mentioned at the outset, I've personally benefited from all the effort that you've put in. You know, I would not be off my antidepressants myself now if I hadn't used tapering strips. And, uh, you know, I, I am delighted to see the 70% figure replicated again for the third time. And, you know, one wonders how many studies have to be done with such a success rate for people to kind of wake up and take notice. May I make one remark here? The 70% uh, of people who succeed tapering uh, an antidepressant completely may give the impression that the other 30% is failing. This is not true because a number of these patients actually end up being on a lower dosage. Other patients may find out that it may be wise perhaps to stay on the drug they are using. So tapering strips can help people find a minimum effective dose, is that right? Well, for instance, but also you can see that patients, even the patients who are in this 30% group, of whom you could say they failed to taper completely, they still say that they are much more satisfied being able to use tapering strips than when they failed tapering without the use of tapering. And I think this is also a very important finding which suggests that patients have a better insight in what they are doing. Peter, Jim, thank you so much again for uh, spending your time with us and for all your work. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, I just want to thank Peter and Jim for spending time with me to talk about their study. And if you do want to know more about tapering strips, you can visit the website taperingstrip.org. So thank you so much for listening. Please do go and find our new app on the Apple App Store or Google Play, as it's probably the easiest way to find our new interviews and listen to our archives. So until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.